Welcome to the Good Money Habits podcast, where we marry financial literacy with tips from the experts on how to develop good money habits. Knowing what your options are when it comes to your finances is one thing, how to change your habits and translate the knowledge into action and results is quite another. If this is a new focus for you, we suggest you start with the Foundation Series episodes. Throughout this podcast series, we will meet and interview experts from across the finance field, where they will share their insights and tips for success. We are all about helping people gain financial stability to live a better life. This podcast is brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. It is important to understand that today's episode is of a general nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs, and may not be appropriate for you. Hello and welcome to Good Money Habits. This is Julia Shortinghouse. You can probably hear already from the sound of my voice that I'm excited for today's podcast. Um, today we're going to be exploring the emerging and fast-growing world of robo-advice. And joining me today for the first time in the studio is my colleague, Josh Stone, who's a financial planner and the chair of the Lighthouse Capital Investment Committee. Now, I've asked Josh to join the conversation today because, um, dare I admit, he's just a wee bit younger than me and, and no doubt offers a different perspective. So welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. Now, according to Statista, assets managed by robo-advisors globally is expected to grow at an annual rate of roughly 26%. So it's projected that over the next four years, we'll see approximately $25 billion invested via robo-advice platforms. So clearly there's an appetite in this space. In Australia today, there are several providers, with three in particular who are currently gaining solid traction, one of them being Six Park, and I'm delighted to welcome the co-founder and co-CEO of Six Park to today's podcast, Pat Garrett. Pat, welcome to Good Money Habits. Uh, hi, Julia, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your time. Um, Pat, as this space has been evolving, it, it appears that different providers have taken different approaches in relation to things like the features and the pricing structures. So it's not a one size fits all. Um, and also important for me to just remind the listeners and point out that um, today is not intended to be advice. Um, but let's yeah. just kick off and get on with it. So Pat, in broad terms, what is robo-advice actually and who is it suitable for? Yeah, um, robo-advice, as mentioned, was, is, online, is an online investment management service. So basically, um, what's provided is a risk assessment um, series of questions to assess risk appetite, risk capacity, and uh, investment horizon, which an algorithm is then used to suggest a recommended portfolio um, that might be suitable for that investor, uh, typically in the form of an asset allocation um, profile and using exchange-traded funds uh, for the asset classes. And if a user um, agrees with the recommendation, then the service will typically online in a highly automated way help a user set up a cash account and a brokerage account. And then basically do um, the uh, buying of the ETFs to construct a a globally diversified portfolio uh, on behalf of the investor and do things on an ongoing basis like portfolio rebalancing, market reviews, um, uh, ETF selection, so on and so forth. And by using automation um, for a lot of the activities, the price um, is typically a fair bit lower than if somebody wanted or needed much more complex uh, investment management or financial advice services. So um, 
basically the service is, is, is really targeted at, at, at the mass market that um, where it's either too difficult, confusing, or, or in some instances expensive um, to get this type of guidance. It's a, it's a way to get invested in a uh, fairly affordable and accessible way. And you've touched on a few interesting concepts there, which we might circle back to, things like asset allocation, which is something that yep. we regard as being really important when constructing portfolios, um, risk profiling, another critical element for anyone that's thinking about investing, and uh, passive investing. But before we dive into those things, uh, Pat, you do sound really passionate about this space. Can you maybe yep. tell us a little bit more about your backstory and what led you to specialising in this area? Yeah, sure. Um, in case you couldn't tell, I'm, I'm actually from the U.S. and I moved um, at well after uni in the U.S. I worked in New York at J.P. Morgan for ten years. The tail end of which was in the private equity business, which was um, set up and built by Brian Watson, who um, I had the good fortune to work for back then. He's Australian. He's moved back to Australia. Lured me here about twenty years ago, and um, we had once. We, we had talked for a while about wanting to set up a, some sort of business ourselves, um, um, and we were searching for the right idea and the, the idea that we would, you know, we, we had interest, uh, knowledge, and passion about. And both personally and professionally, uh, we had experienced um, uh, the dynamic of people who wanted or needed investment help but couldn't get it. And uh, for me personally, actually, it, it went back a little further to when my dad passed away in 1997. And um, being the only one in the family who was working for a financial institution, um, although I wasn't necessarily uh, an investment guru at the time, um, I had to figure out what to do with a, a small number of blue chip U.S. stocks that uh, was my sort of in my dad's estate, so to speak, and figure out how to... Um, basically restructure that investment portfolio in a way that was suitable for my mom. And that was, uh, so I'm going back to 1997. That was a lot harder than it should have been. Um, and I knew something about finance. And um, so I ended up using ETFs and built sort of a portfolio for my mom that fit kind of what she needed at the time. And then if you fast forward to about five, six years ago, um, a lot of friends, Again, we're asking, you know, what should I do with my money? Where should I invest it? Interest rates are low. That kind of common path of, uh, in Australia of, of saving in a high savings, uh, a high yielding account for your first home deposit. Housing affordability made that more difficult. Low interest rates that made that more difficult. People were trying to figure out what to do investment wise and were asking me questions and I didn't want to be giving stock tips to people, um, because that wasn't my job. So that was when it dawned on Brian and myself that if we could build a technology-driven solution, and the ETF market was just taking off in, in Australia, so the, so, so the building blocks of this type of service uh, had surfaced. APIs, without getting too technical, which is sort of the, the technology um, communication tools to sort of build a service like this, mm -hmm. were, mature, were maturing in Australia. So. It was sort of the perfect timing and the perfect idea. And um, Brian at the time was also a member of the Board of Guardians of the Future Fund, so which is a sovereign wealth fund. He, he was effectively part of a team that gave asset allocation advice to the country, or at least to the country's wealth, so sovereign wealth fund. So we thought, this is 
this is kind of a no-brainer. We have to have a crack at this. And so it really resonated personally as well as, you know, candidly, we thought it, it was a good opportunity to build a business here. And we also saw that it had happened in the U.S. Um, in the wake of the GFC when people realized um, there, there should be a better way to get investment guidance. That didn't re- that GFC moment didn't really happen in Australia as bad because the GFC didn't impact Australia uh, like it did overseas. It, there wasn't even a recession. So, um, so the impetus for change in Australia really has been more recent with the Banking Royal Commission uh, and a few other things. We, we knew the financial advice sector um, had some issues with it. Um, and I, and I, uh, to be clear, I'm not painting the whole industry that way. I'm, I'm painting, you know, some of the, the bad incidences that were happening and basically just some of the, some of the, some of the fixes that needed to be put in place to maybe get the, the consumer a little bit more at the center of, um, activity as opposed to products. And the banks obviously were, um, doing some things that they needed to fix. And so anyway, so it, it, if you detect the passion about it, it it's real because it, it, it affected me personally and professionally. And um, I just think, I think all Australians should have the ability um, to have access to affordable investment management services. And um, we are actually starting to see, um, and COVID sped it up a bit, and we'll probably talk a little bit about that, but we are starting to see uh, consumers and, and institutions realize that you know, you have to have digital offerings like this uh, for, a, for for the mass market. Yeah, Pat, thank you very much for that personal response. Um, what I hear is is almost, and what Julia and I and Lighthouse can relate to, is that sort of almost noble intention that a, a byproduct of this is an overall increase in hopefully financial literacy and, and therefore yeah. better investment decisions. Um, and I personally can relate to that, to the timing in Australia in that anecdotally uh, sort of, since COVID, I suppose, I've had a lot of people ask whether, is this a good time to be buying shares? And most yeah. of those people are people who haven't invested before. So yeah. so if there's listeners there who are asking that that same question, is this where robo-advice could be a good fit? Uh, and uh, if so, how, how would they go about determining? What questions should they ask? Yeah, I think, um, I think the answer is um, it, it is a good fit because – I think that people tend to think of investing as sort of a binary decision. I'm either in the I'm, I'm either in the share market or I'm sit, or, or I'm not. And the and the reality is we we, we mentioned sort of asset asset allocation, um, and um, that refers to asset classes. So you can actually invest in things like bonds and high yield cash and and more defensive asset classes um, that give you a lower risk investment profile, if you will. And so um, if you have a medium to long-term investment horizon, our, our investment philosophy is um, uh, there really is n- not a wrong time to get invested. It's, you know, there's a, you, you'd be familiar with the time in the market is, is, is more important than time in the market. Um, so I guess if you had a really, really short time horizon uh, from an investment perspective, um, that's one thing. But if you have a medium to long term, our investment philosophy is predicated on two things, being well diversified um, to suit your risk profile and investment horizon and to keep your costs low. And um, I don't think there's really a wrong, I don't, I don't think there's a bad time to invest if you go about doing it that way. 
you might start off from in a more conservative type portfolio because of concerns about the market or um, your personal situation. I mean, certainly if you've if you've just um, if you've just been let go, if your salary's been reduced, yeah. or you know, then you probably don't want to become a day trader and 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 um, you know really start rolling dice in that regard. But um, I, I just don't think there's a wrong time to to get invested. It's just it's it's the how, and I think Robo Robo Advice helps very much with that because there is that tool at the front end to to give you some guidance. Yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on. That um, you touched on day traders and your investment time horizon, which we'll we'll probably circle back to. Um, yeah. But when I was doing a little bit of research, uh, what I was drawn to, and and to be honest, surprised, um, was the investment committee aspect. Um, yeah. That blending of of technology and human. Um, yeah. Would you be able to expand on on the role the investment community plays and the importance yeah, of that? I, yeah, I'd love to because frankly, I think that's a bit of I, I think that's a bit of a differentiator uh, for Six Park. Um, when Brian and I decided to set this up. Um, and I, I mentioned he was on the board of guardians for the future fund. Um, one way that we wanted to show, to, w- w- one thing we, that we could see in the market is that there was a bit of a trust deficit um, um, in the financial services industry, uh, broadly speaking. So one of the things we wanted to do, since we're automating a lot of the process, um, it's very important that that there are capable, experienced um people behind that automation and you can build an automated investment management services that uses ETFs and is based on asset allocation. But if you're getting that asset out, if you're getting those parameters wrong, um, you're probably not going to get very good risk adjusted returns. So what we did is we, we, um, Brian mainly recruited, um, uh, Mark Nicholson, who was the ex chief, co-chief investment officer of the World Bank, and Lindsay Tanner, who's the ex-finance minister of Australia, who um, some may say, well, what does that have to do with investing? Lindsay's input adds a phenomenal dimension to sort of our kind of world view of things um, as it influences um, financial decisions. So there is a human overlay to what we do that we think is quite unique um, for effectively kind of a what's you know of I don't want to say low cost but um, a mass market affordable solution th- that is different and it is not a it's not a token investment committee uh, they meet it at least every two months we met yesterday um, there's a very very robust standing agenda items of portfolio review ETF review global market review asset class review ETF selection uh, and they'll meet more frequently when things get you know really volatile. But um, uh, to be candid, I pay them in equity, not cash. Otherwise, we couldn't keep our fees low. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're shareholders of the business and they're clients of the business. So what we found is our service has resonated with um, our average account size is probably about $85,000. Now, we start at 5000 We have a lot of five and $10,000 first-time investors, a lot. Um, but we also have multi-million dollar accounts from people um, who I think that investment committee overlay becomes very important because ultimately, I mean, you all know this, but as well or more than I do, um, engaging in an advice or guidance relationship with a client with, as, as it relates to their money, um, particularly money that's going to, you know, um, 
support their life, let, you know, support them later in life. That's, a, that's an incredibly important decision. And a lot of people, a, a lot of young people, I think, overlook the importance of that early. Um, um, but um, the investment committee for us uh, has really Im- impacted um, good returns, but also the way we're perceived in the market um, with consumers, but also with with um, wealth firms, because we're now partnering with wealth firms and accountants um, to basically help them uh, put a service like ours kind of in their s- suite of services to meet a broader market. But now the investment committee is, is incredibly important, as you would know, Josh, sharing one. Yeah, I, I just think I'd love to be a fly on the wall in, on some of those meetings, especially yeah. during these sort of periods. Um, yeah, yeah. We, look, I, it, yeah I, I've used that exact same phrase before. I want to tape record one of ours and put it out there and say for a small amount of you know that's your uh, cost, this is, this, this is what you get. A $5,000 investor is getting asset allocation yeah. advice from these three people. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. You're sort of changing the, the investment mindset and behavior. Um, yeah of the general population, which, which can only be a good thing. Um, I think it also um, takes me back. I've got to say, Pat, because like yourself, um, I have a background with a U.S. investment bank and uh, it feels a little bit like that old saying, uh, bringing a wall street to main street. Um, So quite interesting. And I guess um, that's a, that ties in beautifully with what we're doing here with this podcast, because that's precisely what we're trying to achieve here as well. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, look, so they're all the, that's all all very positive, all the rosy points. But I suppose if you come at it from another angle, um, we need to try and touch, I suppose, on on concerns or maybe perceived concerns that that people just um, experiencing robo advice for the first time may have. Um, so the first one that comes to mind is probably cybersecurity uh, and data breaches that you, you yeah. can't really escape at the moment, especially since uh, our federal government raised concerns around potential cybersecurity breaches from overseas countries. So. I yeah. guess without being too technical, how do you allay those fears and what measures do robo-advice firms implement to ensure these sort of breaches don't happen? Yeah, so there's sort of probably two components to that answer. One is um, we do regular things like penetration testing and um, all sorts of um, security audits on the on our application, so to speak, um, um, to make sure that we are sort of wholesale level of um, cybersecurity um, um, measures are in place. Equally as important, we actually don't really store, um, well, we don't really, we don't store um, in our application the really sensitive data that, um, you, you you would be concerned about um, a cyber attack for it. So, for example, we open a Macquarie CMA account on behalf of clients, and that's that's a that's a CMA account in in their name. We just um, are authorized to, uh, on their behalf to trade from that. And we also use uh, uh, we're not brokers, so we use um, another brokerage firm um, uh, to do the execution. So the real areas of um, where would cybersecurity come into most play? I actually sit with the likes of Macquarie and Open Markets, which are um, uh, v- very yeah. front foot in regard to cybersecurity. So um, I think if, 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 if a startup kind of out of the garage, so to speak, robust service was doing everything, 
then that would be a really, really big question. Well, it's a, it's a very big question, but probably more of a concern. Um, we hold very little sensitive data on our application. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the answer there, that you don't store the data. Um, Correct. The second concern, and this is maybe more of a broad picture angle, but um, a bit of context behind the question, I suppose. There's staggering numbers coming out of the US um, around the volume of new share trading accounts being opened. Um, yep. And specifically, specifically on the Robinhood app. So, yep. a CNBC article reported three million new Robinhood accounts created in quarter one, twenty twenty, and that's compared yep. to three hundred sixty three thousand on eTrade for the same period. So, yep. yeah, <laughs> massive demand there. Um, and some context yep. for the listener: Robinhood is a US based mobile app that allows users to trade stocks, ETFs, options, and almost puzzling, puzzlingly. To, to gear that is to invest borrowed money and all this with zero yeah. brokerage yeah um so you you're probably well aware but robin hood has been in the news for all the wrong reasons uh yeah. af- after the suicide of a 20 year old illinois man yeah. who saw yeah. yeah an apparent negative balance of seven hundred thirty thousand on his robin hood account so yeah. you know there starts off a good intent but then we see the unintended consequences of these um yeah. inexperienced investors looking for a quick buck making poor investment decisions and doing more harm than good. Yeah. So factoring all that in and, and with a big caveat that Robinhood is, is vastly different to what six pack is, but, but how yeah. can we protect Australians uh, and ensure we don't head down this Robinhood type path? Well, I, I think to some extent, I hate to say this, I think um, Australia hasn't been immune to that dynamic. I found it quite because the number of retail um, accounts had opened up um, w- when quarant- w- when the quarantine started and people had access to pull down ten thousand dollars of super. Um, the number of retail brokerage accounts in Australia actually went up quite significantly. Not 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 of the nature of Robinhood, but um, I think something like four times the normal rate over the course of a, a month or two. And uh, both the um, ASIC and RBA within a month warned investors about the risks of day trading because there was visibility on those retail accounts by the regulators as to how long people were holding securities. And the answer was a day. And um, so a lot of people thought, well, I'm, I'm stuck at home. I can't gamble. Yeah. Um, and I can get 10 grand out of my super account. So um, Australia probably hasn't been that immune to it. I think the main... Um, the main uh, difference is that concept of um, portfolio diversification, um, uh, getting some guidance at the front end, um, and uh, and importantly, probably like the equivalent of a knowledge center that we have on our site, which explains what we do, why we do it, why diversification matters, why um, uh, timing the market. Um, and, and individual stock selection is phenomenally difficult. Um, and uh, S&P data, S&P, you'd be familiar with the S&P active versus inactive data that um, most active fund managers mm-hmm. underperform the index. They um, are paid to, to, in theory, outperform after fees. Um, I, I'm all for empowering people to be able to trade. Uh, and for people to want to do research and pick stocks and 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 have a go at sort of the market because there's nothing 
inherently wrong with that. The, the issue is when people are doing it with a significant portion of their investable assets and don't and have no idea how risky it is. Um, um, and the fact that if they buy something, that means there's probably somebody really smart who's selling it on the other end. So I think um, the problem with something like Robinhood is that um, it is effectively saying uh, you got to be in it to win it, but not saying, by the way, the game you're getting in is really dangerous um, if you don't know what you're doing. And so what, what Robo Advice does is it sort of steps back to the fundamentals of the, the, the philosophy we talked about at the beginning, get your investment diversification right, keep your costs low, and, and, and probably get it circling back to the answer to the question, avoid the common behavioral mistakes, um, fear of missing out, uh, that herd mentality, um, all these different, you know, we could talk for ages about behavioral finance and what, how that gets people into trouble. But robo-advice sort of quarantines that. It doesn't really allow that to happen. Um, so that, I guess that's how I would answer that. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, Pat. And um, one would argue we've been through one of the fastest bear and bull markets in history, yeah. uh, which is yeah. no doubt drawn a lot of people in as well. And I really um, was pleased to hear you talk about the behavioural side of it. I think that's important. And throughout this podcast series, we've been talking about what we think of as the three fundamentals of investing, being inflation, diversification and compounding. And we've touched on some of those already. Uh, but I wouldn't yeah. mind talking about compounding and how people can, if you like, reduce the, the timing risk or their entry point into the market? Yeah, I think there's a couple, there's, there's a couple ways there. And, and you're exactly right as far as the three things that are probably the, the fundamental things investors should think about. Um, one would be to the extent, let's assume somebody's got their finances in, in control. They're not, um, you know, cash flow negative or... Um, clearly should be using any extra cash flow to pay down debt. Let's assume somebody has sort of started their accumulation phase, uh, large or small. Um, the way to sort of mitigate, one, to kind of mitigate the risk you raise, and two, uh, probably optimize the chance of a good outcome down the road is to reinvest dividends, um, dollar cost average over time, um, and periodically re rebalance a portfolio. That would probably, you know, those are those are three risk management uh, and or um, investment optimization strategies, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and the dollar cost averaging for those that may, may not be familiar with that is, um, and it, it's probably pretty relevant right now because of those people that we talked about earlier who are wondering, do, do I get it? I've got... X you know, I'll just make up a number. I've got $100 to invest. Um, should I invest today? Um, I would say if you've got a long-term view, the answer is, you know, put it in the market and and get on with life. But if you're worried, you could put, you know, $10 a month in for 10 months. And if the market, and, and, and that's called dollar cost averaging. And you'll kind of get the average over time because we are in a pretty unknown period right now. And reinvesting dividends is incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, because the nature of markets, is, is, as you all know, obviously, they go up and they go down. That's the price you pay um, for the returns you get uh, by investing in the, in the share market. And if you're reinvesting dividends, you are, um, you're going to be putting money back into shares during the down cycles as well. Um, but over time, um, 
uh, markets, the one thing history does show is that over time markets go up. So if you have the ability to sort of weather the up and down cycles, then dollar cost averaging, reinvesting dividends, um, uh, will will, uh, will have you buying during the down cycles of the market. And that becomes incredibly powerful over time. Yeah, Pat, you're talking my language. And um, for those that have been <laughs> listening to this podcast series, yeah, I yeah. managed to buy my first car with, dollar, uh, with sorry, dividend reinvestment. And um, that kind of got me on this pathway, I imagine. And we talk a lot to our clients about dollar cost averaging. And for those that want to find a little bit more about that, head to the Money Smart website that ASIC has online. Yeah. Um, there's some really good information there as well. Pat, I feel like we could talk all day. Um, we are running out of time. Um, so we might um, have to look to wrap up. But can I just ask you what's next for robo advice in your mind um i think the next um phase is similar to what's happened overseas is um working with intermediaries i think the the most efficient and likely way that robo advice will end up being available to the mass market is by working with um financial intermediaries whether it's advisors accountants wealth firms or the banks and that has happened overseas Every major financial institution in the U.S., J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, Fidelity, Vanguard, every institution has a robo-like service to meet the mass market need. That hasn't happened in Australia yet, but it's starting to happen. We are now partnered with multiple wealth firms um, and in discussions with some of the larger institutions. We can, you know, white label our offering. Um, um, and, and relatively easily stand up a service that a, a larger institution can, can use to complement and get people earlier in their wealth journey, um, kind of incubated or in, into it an institution's ecosystem, so to speak. So I think the future of robo advice is collaboration. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to hear yeah. that because we've been looking for, I guess, you know, good solutions um, for us to be able to collaborate with our clients as well, as I'm sure, you know, many financial yeah. planners have around the country. So to me, that makes sense. And it, it is um, somewhat of a relief to start to see some good quality offerings out in the yeah. marketplace. So Pat, it has been, just been great to be able to chat today and to dig a little bit deeper into this really exciting and I'll say evolving space. So thanks yeah. very much for your time and for sharing your experience and insights today. It's a pleasure, Julia. Thank you very much. And thanks, Josh, as well. Thanks, Pat. So thanks so much for that. If there's um, if anyone listening um, can think of anyone that they'd like us to interview or any other particular topic areas you'd like us to consider, please feel free to email us at info at lighthousecapital.com.au. So until next time, thank you for joining us. That was another episode of Good Money Habits brought to you by Lighthouse Capital. A reminder that this episode was general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs and therefore may not be appropriate for you. It is recommended that you seek professional advice before making any significant financial decisions. If you want to find out more, this podcast series is available on Apple Podcasts or head to www.lighthousecapital.com.au.